Welcome to the History Guy Podcast, a podcast dedicated to stories of lesser-known historical events told by Lance Geiger, also known as the History Guy on YouTube. I'm Josh, your host, a writer for the channel and eldest son of the History Guy. We tell all kinds of stories about history, from the modern era to the ancient past, so you never know what we're going to talk about next. One thing you can be sure of, it is history that deserves to be remembered. We at The History Guy are also excited to announce a new way to interact with the team and The History Guy himself at Locals.com. Join The History Guy Guild for your one-stop location to chat with other history fans, get updates on the team, and more. You can join for free or pay as little as $5 a month to get access to live chats with The History Guy, looks behind the scenes, early access to ad-free videos, and more. Find us at thehistoryguyguild.locals.com. We look forward to seeing you there. On today's episode, the History Guy tells three stories surrounding Pearl Harbor. First, he'll tell the story of the unsung heroics of the Sikorsky JRS-1s, small, unarmed planes that faced incredible danger during and after the attack on December 7th. Then he'll tell the story of two pilots who got into the air that fateful day, George Welch and Kenneth Taylor. Finally, he'll tell the story of one of the Pearl Harbor battleships sunk that day, the only battleship to also shell the shores of Normandy on D-Day. Without further ado, let me introduce the History Guy. When the Japanese attacked the U.S. Pacific Fleet at Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, the 440-acre islet called Ford Island was a central target. Not only were seven of the eight battleships of the U.S. Pacific Fleet that were at Pearl Harbor moored in Battleship Row near Ford Island, but the island included a naval air station, the headquarters of the Navy's Patrol Wing 2. Destruction of the Navy Air Station was a high-value target for the Japanese, especially the Navy's 33 consolidated Catalina PBYs. The PBY was an amphibious patrol bomber whose range made it an excellent scouting aircraft. By attacking the seaplane facilities on Ford Island, the Imperial Japanese Navy was trying to blind the American Navy, taking away its ability to find the Japanese fleet. Of 33 PBYs at Pearl Harbor, 24 were destroyed and 6 others damaged beyond repair. Only three that had been on patrol at the time of the attack were undamaged. And yet the attack had skipped one part of Ford Island. Ten Sikorsky JRS-1 amphibious aircraft of the Navy's Utility Squadron 1 were undamaged. The JRS-1 is the Navy designation for the Sikorsky S-43, a twin-engine amphibious aircraft that airlines referred to as the Baby Clipper. First flown in 1935, the aircraft could accommodate up to 25 passengers. The plane had an 86-foot wingspan and was 51 foot 2 inches long. Powered by two 750-horsepower Pratt & Whitney radial engines, the plane had a maximum speed of 190 miles per hour and a range of 775 miles. In all, 53 S-34s were produced. Pan American Airways used the S-34 for routes in Latin America, and three operated as part of an inter-island service in Hawaii. Five of the aircraft were purchased by the U.S. Army Air Corps in 1937, and 17 were purchased by the U.S. Navy between 1937 and 1939, where they were designated the JRS-1. Two of those 17 served with the Marine Corps. The 10 JRS-1s of Utility Squadron VJ-1 had been moved to Hawaii in 1940 and were the Pacific Fleet's photographic unit. Their main function was aerial photography, although Utility Squadrons were multi-purpose units, developed as a you-call, we-haul operation and sometimes referred to as the handyman of the air. The utility squadrons towed targets for gunnery practice, 
took aerial photographs to, for example, spot torpedoes used in torpedo practice so that they may be recovered. But they were very commonly used for transport, when and where the Navy needed, and to carry the mail, a critical practice for maintaining morale. Representing these roles, the logo of Utility Squadron VJ-1 was a pelican carrying a bag of mail with its feet and a photographer in its beak. In fact, the JRS-1s of EJ-1 were brightly painted, not like combat aircraft, but for their role delivering the mail. The planes were silver and orange-yellow with a bright green tail and red trim. Although they were sometimes used for escort duty and had racks that allowed them to be armed with depth charges to attack submarines, they included no guns, their role being described generally as a flying pickup truck. Lawrence Burke, a curator at the National Air and Space Museum, described them as the station wagon of its day that did all the boring jobs that needed to be done. But in the immediate wake of the attack, with the Pacific Fleet's air assets largely in ruins, the JRS-1s were pressed into service beyond all expectations. The JRS-1s would have to go in search of the Imperial Japanese Navy. The Japanese fleet was still lurking somewhere nearby, and no one knew their intent. The Navy needed to know if more attacks were coming, or an even greater fear, if an invasion of the Hawaiian Islands was on its way. But if the unarmed JRS-1s were to find the Japanese fleet, that fleet would be protected by fighter aircraft, like the Mitsubishi A6M-0, nearly three times as fast as the JRS-1 and mounting 20mm cannons in their wings. For defense, JRS-1 crews were issued rifles and Marine and Army volunteers who would sit at the back doors of the aircraft. The plan, if they ran into Japanese fighter aircraft, was to try to shoot at those aircraft with rifles out the windows. In fact, that was a suicide mission. If one of the JRS-1s were to encounter the Japanese fleet, the only hope was that they could radio the fleet's location before being shot down. And still their crews went up, searching for the fleet that had devastated the U.S. Pacific Squadron. They flew just under the cloud cover, hoping to disappear into the clouds if they encountered any hostile aircraft. While they never encountered the Japanese fleet, in retrospect it appears that one of the JS-1s got within 40 miles of them. Their service in searching, despite having no realistic defense, had they succeeded in finding their quarry, could only be described as heroic. JRS-1s also played a critical role in surveying the damage from the attack. If you see an aerial photograph of Pearl Harbor showing damage from the attack, odds are it was taken by a JRS-1. Only one JRS-1 is known to survive. It is currently being restored by the U.S. National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. It is one of only a handful of aircraft that were on station at Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, that is known to survive, and the only such plane in the museum's collection. Next up, the History Guy tells the story of George Welch and Kenneth Taylor, who managed to get their planes up against incredible odds on December 7, 1941. In the chaos of the surprise Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, December 7th of 1941, only eight U.S. pilots managed to get aircraft airborne in order to contest the nearly 400 Japanese that were attacking the island of Oahu. The story of two of those really does stand out, and it always surprises me when I find out people who don't know the names of George Welch and Kenneth Taylor, because their story at Pearl Harbor is really extraordinary. But more than that, and more than the fact that both of them were heroes in every sense of the word, is the great lesson that what they did teaches about how to respond under pressure. And so today we're going to talk about the hero pilots of Pearl Harbor. The Japanese attack commenced at 7.48 a.m. 353 planes in two waves reached Oahu. 
The torpedo bombers took advantage of the surprise and attacked the ships in the harbor, focusing on the battleships. The dive bombers attacked the Army air bases at Hickam Field and Wheeler Field in order to prevent Americans from taking off and defending the island. While all that was going on, two American fighter pilots in Oahu had been out all night partying. George Welch was a native of Wilmington, Delaware. He completed three years studying mechanical engineering at Purdue University before joining the U.S. Army Air Corps in 1939. After receiving his wings in January of 1941, he was posted to the 47th Pursuit Squadron, Wheeler Field, Oahu. On December 7, 1941, he was 23 years old. Kenneth Taylor hailed from Enid, Oklahoma. He spent two years studying pre-law at the University of Oklahoma before joining the U.S. Army Air Corps in 1940. After receiving his wings in April of 1941, he was also posted to the 47th Pursuit Squadron. On December 7, 1941, he was just 21 years old. Both were good pilots. Their commanding officer, General Gordon Austin, had made them both flight commanders. The week before the Japanese attack, the 47th Pursuit Squadron was temporarily moved from Wheeler Field to the unpaved auxiliary airstrip at Halaiva for gunnery practice. The night of December 6th, there had been a big dance at the officers' club. Eager to impress the ladies, Welch and Taylor had worn their best mess dress, the army equivalent of a tuxedo. After the dance, they joined some other officers for an all-night poker game. They were just wrapping up when the bombs started falling. The first wave hit their home field at Wheeler Field hard. The army hadn't anticipated an air attack, so they'd had the aircraft group up to make them easier to defend from sabotage. That made them easy targets for the Japanese dive bombers. And now the aircraft that were needed to defend Oahu from this attack were in flames. But Welch and Taylor realized that the auxiliary base over at Haleiwa might not have been targeted yet. So they called ahead and asked that their two Curtis P-40B pursuit fighters be fueled and armed. Running outside, they jumped into Taylor's Buick, Japanese machine guns kicking up dust around them. They raced down the 10-mile road to the airbase, sometimes reaching speeds of 100 miles an hour. When they got to Haleiwa, they realized it hadn't been attacked yet, and their fighters were sitting there, fueled, armed, and waiting for them. Still wearing their tuxedo pants from the night before, they jumped into their airplanes and took off. The sky was full of Japanese airplanes, two pilots against hundreds. They saw a flight of dive bombers and charged in, guns blazing. Each of them took down two enemy aircraft before they were out of ammunition. They returned to heavily damaged Wheeler Field in order to rearm. When they landed, Taylor had been wounded by a bullet that came through his cockpit, and one of Welch's guns was jammed. The ammunition for their planes was in a burning warehouse, and the ground crews had to run into the inferno in order to get ammunition to rearm. Before they could be fully rearmed, the Japanese attacked again, and so they took off, charging guns blazing before they were even in the air. They took down another three Japanese aircraft before the Japanese attack was over. At the end of the day, George Welch was credited with four air victories and Kenneth Taylor with two, although some evidence that they shot down at least a couple of other Japanese planes. That's out of a total of just 10 confirmed air victories for all American pilots at the Battle of Pearl Harbor. A War Department communique on December 13, 1941, proclaimed Taylor and Welch the first two American heroes of the Second World War. They were both given the Distinguished Service Cross, which is second only to the Congressional Medal of Honor, and Taylor won the Purple Heart. George Welch went on to serve three tours in the Pacific and finished the war with 16 confirmed air victories, an ace three times over. After the war, he was a test pilot for many years and tragically died in 1954 when the experimental jet that he was testing broke up in midair. 
Kenneth Taylor went on to fly out of the famous Henderson Field on Guadalcanal and then train pilots in the United States. He ended the war an ace with six confirmed victories. He served in the active military for 27 years and then with the Alaska Air National Guard and finally retired a brigadier general. He passed away in 2006. In an interview in 2003, Kenneth Taylor summed up perhaps the very nature of heroism. He said, I wasn't terrified in the least, and let me tell you why. I was too young and too stupid to know that I was in a lot of danger. So what do we learn from this? I mean, it's an exciting story, but it didn't change the war. Shoot, their actions that day didn't even really change the battle. And yet, two guys took on a whole sea of enemies and somehow gave much better than they got, and there must be something to learn from that. Well, what Taylor and Welch really did was they acted. They took initiative. They had faith in their abilities and their equipment. They followed their training. They didn't sit. They acted. And that seems to be a hallmark of heroism, just a hallmark of success. Faith in your abilities and the willingness to act on that faith. Now's the part of the episode where we get to chat with the history guy. A little bit about what we just heard, what we're going to hear, and of course some behind-the-scenes stuff that you only get to hear about on the podcast. So when this episode airs, we'll be about a week past the 81st anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor. And so we thought it was a, a good time to talk about some of the some of the amazing stories that are there in mm-hmm. Pearl Harbor and the various stories of heroism and all the all the kinds of things that we can talk about. And so uh, the two episodes we just listened to are both I think examples of kind of forgotten history with Pearl Harbor. And you think of Yeah. Yeah, I mean I think maybe this story of Welch and Taylor is a little bit more told and they yeah. told a really, you know, screwed up perverted version of it in the, in the Michael Bay <laughs> Pearl Harbor movie. That <laughs> was really not too close to the truth. But I mean, I think maybe people have heard of them. I think the JRS one is, is truly an old story and they're, they're yeah. untold, the unsung heroes, really, those those little, yeah. you know, pickup trucks or what they call them, station wagons that were yeah. doing that sort of support work, yeah. But I mean, I think those are, and there's a lot of those at Pearl Harbor. There's a lot of really forgotten yeah. stories of Pearl Harbor and, and, and some of them, you know, are truly permanently forgotten in that there was a lot of heroism, of course, yeah. and, you know, that was on the Arizona that no one was there to remember, you know, or to document. So it, it was, uh, I mean, there was such a chaotic day uh, and uh, people who didn't really know that they were at war, uh, that uh, there, there were a lot of actions that were really just incredibly selfless. Yeah. And I mean, I think we could keep telling stories for a long time about Pearl Harbor. One of the stories, you know, you start you, with the with the Sikorskis, you start talking about the the Catalinas, which end up getting all shot mm-hmm. up. I've always kind of had a had a soft spot for the Catalinas because they're they're just uh, they they're one of those planes that I don't think it's talked about too much, but that did a, did played significant roles, absolutely critical role. Yeah, yeah. and we talked about them in different ways, but like, like Johnston Atoll was a yeah. was a, a, a seaplane base, uh, and there uh, it, it's interesting that when the Japanese attacked and they when they planned the attack, the very first attacks came not on the battleships but on Fort Island. Yeah, uh, and that that was a very specific strategic decision by the Japanese to blind the U.S. Navy by destroying that seaplane base, and so they uh, they really saw the Catalinas as being the number one target, and th- that really shows their understanding of what it means, you know, to have those patrol aircraft. Yeah, I think we get uh, I, to some extent, you know, Pearl Harbor is very well known as as an event, but uh, it's certain parts of it. And so you get you get some of the some of the stuff buried and the you know the audacity of this Japanese surprise attack and the, mm-hmm. the horrors that they you know rain down 
on the people of Pearl Harbor. I think that when we uh, when you look at it from from where the Japanese were coming strategically, uh, it's very clear what they were trying to do. And I think that yeah. I mean I think that they knew uh, what they were getting themselves into. Uh, I also think that they had higher hopes for <laughs> what they would be able to do about it. Yeah, I mean part of part of it was a thought maybe that they were going to delay the U.S. being yeah. able to respond for for some large period of time or something. I don't know how realistic that was. You know, yeah. uh, uh, Nimitz later said that if they destroyed the oil tanks, that it could have delayed us by a year. I I, I don't know. How how much of that was, you know, a story that he was telling? Because honestly, we've told other stories of the Second World War, like Clearfield Naval Supply Depot. I mean, yeah. you know, inside of a year, uh, they've got a city size uh, uh, storage base that's, that's providing equipment for the entire Pacific Fleet. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I, I don't know how much you could have delayed anything. Once the United States was angry, I mean, we yeah. could just produce on levels that were crazy. I mean, if they'd sunk the entire fleet, we, we, we could have replaced the entire fleet, you know. Yeah. And we actually had quite a lot of that fleet was actually of the, the stuff that we used during the war was already in production at the time yeah. of Pearl Harbor. But uh, uh, it's very clear, uh, you know, uh, the, what they were targeting first and what they were really trying to do is, is delay American response. But I, I think that there was at least this hope that if they sank the battleships, that we would decide it wasn't worth it. Yeah. You know, that we would decide that, you know, we didn't want to, you know, that our, our Pacific fleet is gone and we're not going to contest the Philippines. Which I feel like they must have um, known that that was probably uh, unlikely but hoped it was possible. And I mean, maybe they convinced themselves that it was going to be more likely. I mean, ultimately, it was yeah. a, it was a, a miscalculation if they truly believed that that the U.S. was just going to. That happened. I mean, it's like a hail mary pass in football or something yeah. like that. You know, if if it succeeds, you're the genius, and if it fails, then you're the the goat. And the, I mean, I think the same thing here. When they were, I mean, really, when you looked at Japanese militarism, and and uh, it's it's interesting how that developed over time too. But when you look at Japanese militarism. Uh, and especially after the oil embargo, because they're fighting in China. I mean, Japan realized that they simply had to have the oil reserves of Southeast Asia. Yep. And they concluded that in order to do that, they would have to bypass the Philippines and that the U.S. would try to stop that by through the Philippines yep. and that they had to somehow delay. And so I think the hope was that they would so quickly, by surprise, take over so much of the Pacific uh, that the United States would either be in a hopeless position or that the United States would, you know, be uh, unwilling to respond because of the size of the loss that we took. Yeah. And, and how realistic was that ever? I mean, you know, they, you know, they, they talk a lot about that line where Yamamoto said, you know, I, f I, I fear we've awakened the sleeping dragon. But I yeah. mean, the entire surprise attack was Yamamoto's idea. So I think that's maybe overstated. But uh, one of the questions has been is had the aircraft carriers been there? And it was really coincidence. I mean, I, I'm convinced. I mean, people want to talk about that being a plot. When you look at where the aircraft carriers were and why they were where they were, I don't, it, it doesn't look like there was any design to that. But had the aircraft carriers been there and been just as devastated as the battle fleet, uh, I, you know, who knows? I yeah. mean, it, whether we might have been in a position where we could. I mean, we we didn't end up uh, reinforcing uh, Wake because yeah. we thought there was too much risk. So, I mean, how, how far would we have gone? Would, would we have been willing to give up Hawaii? You know, would we have been willing to, you know, uh, say we can't defend this without a fleet? And, and that would have been, you know, yeah. uh, it, it certainly would have put the Japanese in a position where they could have solidified gains in Southeast yeah. Asia. And, and uh, so, I mean, it, it was a gambit. But I mean, the question is, what else could they what other choice did Japan have? Yeah. Ultimately, I think uh, that's to true achieve too. the goals that they wanted to achieve. I, mean, I don't think Pearl Harbor was inevitable. I don't know if it could have been avoided diplomatically. Uh, I think, honestly, if you look through the 30s in, in Japan, you know, that Japan did not have to move towards militarism. And, and if they hadn't, uh, then, then you know, the, the whole war was unnecessary. Yeah. 
but I mean, I think by the time that you got to Pearl Harbor, uh, that it probably couldn't be avoided, and they probably didn't really have a, another realistic choice. I mean, the, the battle plan prior to Pearl Harbor, prior to Yamamoto saying, you know, this, this do the surprise attack, the whole idea was that the Japanese fleet was defensive. Uh, and, the, you know, the thinking was that our fleet would all pack together and their fleet would all pack together. We'd go out and meet in the middle of the Pacific somewhere. Uh, and that, you know, the Japanese realized that that could never be a winning strategy because of oil. Yeah. And so when when that becomes an impossible strategy, then it's like the von Schlieffen plan or whatever yeah. else. I mean, it's a gamble, but you're saying this is our only, you know, our only, you know, possibility. If they wanted to accomplish what they what they wanted to accomplish, if they wanted to, you know, they, otherwise, you know, they just give up now. You know, war was. I think I think they realized that if they wanted to do, uh, you know, what they were going to do, war with the U.S. was inevitable. And wouldn't they rather, wouldn't mm-hmm. they rather fight us, you know, after they you know, wrecked uh, our fleet? Uh, uh, that, that's it. I mean, that's what in the First World War, too. I mean, Germany calculated they knew that unrestricted submarine warfare yeah. would bring us into the war. The question was, could they get enough advantage out of it before that we could react? And it, what we did is that we in both times, we surprised them on how quickly we could react. Yeah. And I, I just don't think I don't think any of them truly understood the industrial might of the United States in either time. Uh, you know, I don't, how, I don't know that, that the that U.S. Turned fully, towards... fully I, in some ways, I feel like we surprised ourselves because, uh, you know, you talk about oh, yeah. the Clearfield Depot, but there's also uh, Camp Ellis. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I was just uh, doing research for an episode about a munitions factory that essentially just went up uh, almost yeah. overnight. Yeah, uh, and we, bu- we build essentially cities, 50,000, yeah. 60,000 people, and inside of two or three months. Crazy. Uh, and, 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 you know, we sent, uh, so, but I mean, there was, you know, there was, there was preparation on the American yes. side too. You know, one of the things that made a difference was that we had really laid the groundwork for a sustainable supply of pilots that, yep. that ended up making a huge difference in the Pacific. But, uh, it, it, we reacted very quickly. I think maybe so much you're right. So that we even surprised ourselves at how much we were able to do that. Yeah. I, I don't know that we were sure, you know, just how quickly and how, much honestly how many ships we would be building by the end of the war i don't know that we knew what that would look like you know in 1941 i think carl benson had an idea but i mean i don't think that most people that's it but yeah i think i think that a lot of people weren't weren't really sure where we were going to where we were going to end up there and we ultimately uh i mean when you look at it from you know from with hindsight you're like man there was there was no almost no chance for japan after that and but at the time i think and i I like to i like to talk about that i don't i don't think that the japanese would have done it if they thought they had no chance i think they had some yeah i mean yeah i i I, it's kind of hard to say because there was some delusion among the militarists in japan too uh and but uh uh, and i mean there was you know you sent your troops to they they you know thought because there was a sunflower on the bottom of their gun that they were protected by god so i mean i think there maybe was some delusion there i think that probably if a planner really sat down and say our odds against the united states i mean we're very actually a very small island in terms of resources compared to the united states but i mean their their hope also was that we were gonna you know choose to fight in europe instead and i mean there, there was a lot to it uh, and, you know, it's interesting. You know, it brings up another interesting kind of off point that Hitler was completely surprised by Pearl Harbor, didn't know it was coming. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, uh, they, they didn't give him any heads up there. And that, and that really kind of shocked him because he thought the U.S. would be out of the war for longer. Yeah. I have kind of wondered, uh, you know, Germany didn't have to declare war on the U.S. after that. And and they chose to. And I wonder if that uh, what impact it would, might, might have had if they didn't. Uh, but I guess we're I guess we're getting a little off topic from the yeah we have <laughs> um, yeah, wandered around a bit yeah but it's as as you do as, you, you as know you I mean both of do. both of these episodes that we're talking about really show that desperation to defend Pearl Harbor uh, it was yeah. total chaos uh, and you know but there's there's debates over how how we, 
how much we knew and if there were people who should have caught yeah, signs. But ultimately, there's still an awful lot of people who believe that FDR knew yeah. completely and he let it happen, which yeah. I, you know, I don't think that the evidence supports that really. Uh, but I mean, I understand the argument and yeah. why you would strongly believe the argument. But certainly the people on the ground, uh, you know, mm-hmm. Welch and Taylor, for instance, I don't think they mm-hmm. had any Oh, they idea. had no reason to suspect yeah, it. Yeah, completely I mean, caught. Yeah, we, we mentioned on whatever, on Wednesday's episode that uh, Admiral Pye told husband Kimmel, you know, they'll never attack us. We're too strong. Yeah. And I, I mean, there, maybe that was some delusion on a, to, to say there was some delusion on both oh, sides yeah, might be. Yeah. Might Husband Kimmel also famously say, I wish that bull would kill me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I, so th- these Sikorskys, you know, I, I think they're, they're such, they played such an important role, completely yeah. forgotten. And I, I try to, you know, in terms of heroism, I, we, and we talk about so many stories of heroism on this, on this uh, channel, it is incredible to imagine that they got up in those planes, uh, don't have any weapons. And they have volunteers yeah. with rifles, which at yeah. best has got to be making them feel better. Because uh, yeah. I, 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 you can't really get the point of that. And some, someone posted on that say, you know, never underestimate a marine with his rifle. I'm like, yeah, but I mean, good luck. Marine <laughs> with his rifle shooting down a, a, a plane a that's zero was that's that's a lot of the plane's moving <laughs> three times faster than the than the yeah, yeah it's much faster it's firing got, with twenty millimeter cannons. You know, a much greater range. Yeah. And, you, you can't fire <laughs> your. You've rifle got a very fast. small chance, even if you pop him with your with your you know your your, your thirty caliber yeah. weapon, that it's going to do any harm to him. You might get a lucky yeah. shot. I, I I mean, I don't think it's, it's impossible. Possible. Yeah, but certainly the odds were the odds were awfully uh <laughs> well, the windows didn't go down either and they say if you had to shoot you had to, you're supposed to beat the window out with the butt of the gun first yeah it's the, <laughs> and then start, or shoot out the door yeah, yeah uh, these are planes that were clearly not meant to go uh plane to plane combat i mean that that's just that, yeah. that that's i mean you'd say were. that about a catalina too but oh, yeah. I mean, the catalina actually had machine guns on it to defend itself and that yeah. would at least you know deter an adversary or something like that yeah they, so i did say you know it's it would be a cooler story if they discovered the japanese fleet or something yeah. like that but i mean what they really did is we didn't know after pearl harbor if they were planning a land invasion of Japan, or of, I'm sorry, of Hawaii. Of, of Hawaii, which was very possible. Yeah. Uh, and so they, you know, they at, at least showed that the, the the Japanese fleet was far enough away that that wasn't the risk. And if it was coming, at least, you know, the JRS is likely would have seen it. So yeah, you are risking your own life and you're just essentially asserting, if I get close enough that I see that fleet, I'm almost certainly going to get shot down. Yeah. And my but goal hopefully is to I radio can... it in before I go down, you know? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting, and I mean, it was a very scary proposition. It was certainly very brave to get up yeah. in those planes. Uh, well, you know, painted orange for delivering mail. Yeah, <laughs> yeah these. Yeah. This is not like these were these were uh, painted to hide. They were literally bright. Uh, and it's it's interesting that they weren't. I, I don't know. They weren't. They weren't targets. I don't know if the Japanese didn't know uh, that they. I mean, ultimately could serve a similar role as the Catalinas or, or or what exactly there. But yeah, it might be that they had you know only so much. I mean, there were other things that they wanted to yeah. attack that they I mean, didn't. Yeah, but they could I, only prioritize I, so much. I don't think so. I don't think that they thought of the of the <laughs> the mail JRS ones as being a threat. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, that whole that whole squadron, the utility squadron. Uh, the, is is really an unsung unit because I mean they continued to do important work throughout the war, yeah. and that's yeah. I like that. I mean, you know, honestly, you know, we don't talk enough about it. I mean, they they, they took mules all the way up to uh, all the way up Italy because that was the only way that you could be supplying yeah. troops. And you know, those those uh, we haven't even talked about the Red Ball Express or the uh, the the Trans Alaska Highway or some of the other support sort of stuff. There's a lot to talk about, but I mean, there's the, you know, for every troop in the field, if every person in the field, I forget what the numbers are, but I mean, there's a significant number of people behind the lines that are keeping them in the field, yeah. uh, and we've talked some about. That like you know my first episode was about Cluefield Mill Supply Depot, yeah. uh, but uh, I mean it's it's.
it's kind of cool to talk about. I mean, these are really the workhorses, and no one thinks about them. I mean, they weren't sexy. They weren't. I mean, there were there were more uh, Navy sailors that were sailing aboard uh, uh, various support ships of all sorts of kinds uh, than there were sailing on the battleships, and we yeah. you know we don't get to hear about those. And they were I mean, the interesting story we haven't told yet about uh, uh, Pearl Harbor is the Neosha was right behind. It was in between California and Battleship Row, and it was a fleet oiler. It was there to oil the things, and they managed to get underway and get out of the way. I mean, imagine <laughs> I'm there, a big floating bomb, and they, yeah, they're like they were the only real ship on battleship row that got out of there and uh, it's a story itself yeah yeah that's and it's I, I mean it is incredible that we the people who were who were getting ready who were able to get uh, anything halfway underway i mean it takes a lot of people mm -hmm. to move a battleship it is, yeah like, uh, yeah, it was extraordinary that Nevada got out under steam, yeah. that uh, California got her steam up. I mean, that's I mean, there's there's a lot going on to be able to get that, and especially since they they really I mean, it wasn't that we were totally clueless that we were on footage towards war. I mean, we we talked about when we talked yeah. about the war that they had been you know they said if you see a submarine just go ahead and sink it you know you don't yeah. have to ask permission. I mean, we we knew that there was some risk going on, but I mean they were they were just not. I mean, no one was thinking that that day was going to be it. Uh, and so the fact that they were able to react so quickly, you know, many of them, because it was a Liberty Day the day before, many of them didn't have their senior officers aboard yeah. and, and, you know, and uh, well, they and had only certain supplies of ready ammunition and they still managed to engage. I mean, that's extraordinary. Yeah. And that's part of the story. This is, we go all the way back to the start. That's what makes Welch and Taylor so yeah. extraordinary, too, is that, uh, that you know, there was no reason you should get a plane up. The whole idea yeah. was designed around you shouldn't get a plane up. And, you know, they, they did. It's it's. It's really incredible that, you know, they were, I mean, they were, the, the reason that they were ready to go as early as they were was literally because they were already up and they, they were, yeah. they had been yeah. up all night and they, but still <laughs> playing poker all night. Yeah. The, Flying around in their tuxedos too. They had their tuxedo pants on still and they got yeah. their points. Yeah. In the, in the disaster and chaos that was Pearl Harbor yeah. and as hopeless I mean, that's, that's it must story have just seemed. insane. You know, he's got a, he's got a new Cadillac and they're yeah. racing it up the road and the Japanese are shooting at the car and then, and they get, managed to get in the planes. They managed to get in the air and they managed to, yeah. you know, I mean, we did very little damage to really to the attack, but, but uh, they did, you know, I mean, they, shut down five or so of the yeah. 10 planes that our that our aircraft managed to shoot down yeah, it ends up being i mean i guess token resistance essentially uh but it was i it's incredible to think because they 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 believed that they could do something and yeah. truly uh, you were talking about people who you would not have criticized if they had just been like our planes must be gone and yeah. just Ducked, ducked for cover. Yeah, uh, yeah. They, that, no, that, that yeah, would not no one have, would have been... blamed them. I mean, they kept flying and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And instead, so, they uh, yeah. They I mean, there's, right I mean, there's, there's, there's just a devotion to duty there. I mean, if you want to call it heroism or what you want to call it, but there's a devotion to duty there that's yeah. extraordinary because there were a lot of people uh, at Pearl Harbor who no one would have said a word if you kept your head low, and instead they, you know, went out to rescue people or yeah. to do whatever and and put themselves in danger because of it. Yeah, and so you were you were mentioning actually that. This uh, this episode, you were you got in touch with, or they got in touch with you actually, uh, Welch's yeah. son. Yeah, yeah, he uh, he saw the episode and called, and, and we chatted for a long time. He's an interesting guy. You know, his dad died when he was fairly young because yeah. uh, he died. Jack Welch died uh, uh, in a in a jet accident, uh, and uh, yeah, it was. Uh, uh, he grew up kind of in the uh, uh, in among the uh, that aircraft industry that developed in Southern California after the war, uh, and it, I, I think it was an interesting piece of history. And it was kind of interesting to hear the perspective of someone. His his father was truly a hero, uh, but uh, I don't think he really got to know his his father as a yeah. hero. Uh, so I mean that's kind of cool. One of the cool things that happens is the history guys that uh, we get, and we'll get that when we talk about a lot. We've had family members get a hold of us and say thank you for talking about our, you know, 
yeah, our cousin or our uncle or whatever. And we've made a few episodes where someone got a hold of us and says, "This is what my uncle did." Yeah. Uh, and you know, I, I love that. If you've got a sec- you've got a Second World War story or First World War story or a Civil War story or whatever, and you know a family member and you know some details about it, we can tell a story around it. I'm happy yeah. to tell that story. Very grateful to you. I mean, send us send us the stuff and we'll make an episode. Yeah. And and we've told some really you know cool episodes that way. Yeah. It's been it's been really cool to see. Uh, in some cases, we've gotten some new information. Even mm-hmm. uh, from f- folks who have been, you know, studying their own family, yeah. Uh, yeah, which is, a, yeah. and I mean, that's one of the cool things about uh, history is that we think of it as, yeah. you know, you're reading the past, uh, but to some extent, uh, you were learning new things about the past too, and yeah. stuff continues and, yeah, to I mean, come up. Even in terms of World War II, though, too, we're just yeah. leave, losing those stories. That we're yes. losing the veterans so quickly. There have been concerted efforts to try to get veterans to tell their stories, and you find a lot of places where that's been done. But I mean, there's still so many stories that were untold. Virtually universally, you hear people say they never really talked about that time. Yeah. Uh, and so this, you know, we have relatively little time to preserve those stories. So it's great when we can when we can get one that gives us some stuff that we can fill in some other pieces of details, and you can really kind of tell the rich story that I mean, the stuff that deserves to be remembered. I mean, Absolutely. because they're heroes, but also because you know, we, you know, if you if you don't understand the past, then you're going to repeat yeah. it. And these, I, you know, it was an incredibly uh, momentous piece of history, uh, World War Two, and uh, was was I, I mean, it was it was terrible. And I, I can't say that, you know, that it's good that so many people died or anything like that. But it was it changed a lot. Uh, the world was a very different place after the war than it was before. And, you know, that's that's uh, that's what history is about. And those people lived through it. And, you know, we can talk about the bigger, uh, bigger picture thing. But I think, you know, one of the things we like to do and what we did on what you did on these episodes is talked about kind of some of the smaller stuff is that these were people living yeah. through these who were it wasn't just you know words on a page this this yeah was, when, when an event is so large yeah um, it's it's so easy for you to lose uh, other stories all the yeah. stories in there and uh, you know and and then then there becomes sort of a motive to tell the few stories that you've got those end up kind of overshadowing yeah. other stories so I think there's a lot of heroes of Pearl Harbor that uh, you know are are forgotten and because there was just so much chaos going on and then we had such a narrative afterwards and this yeah. is a good way to tell them but I mean I think it happens in lots of different places. Magellan TV is sponsoring this episode, and they sponsor all of our podcasts. And if you've listened to the podcast, you know that what we like to do is talk about what we've been watching on Magellan TV lately. That's so you know, I often look for all sorts of TV. different sort of stuff off of what we do on the History Guy because that, you know it's it's kind of what I'm doing when I'm not working. But this time I chose straight up history, straight up war history, and it's a, it's a documentary called Maggie's War. It's about an officer named James Magellus, who was an officer in the 82nd during the Second World War. And it tells his whole story all the way from Italy uh, all the way through to when he goes to Berlin. And uh, it's kind of what we were just talking about. I mean, this is it was told while well, he's still alive and can narrate his story and talk about what he did is his 90s when the when this documentary was made. So it's a uh, it's compelling. He was at some some very important events throughout the war. He was a company commander in the airborne uh, and uh, uh, he did some incredibly heroic stuff. There's a point where he with two hand grenades took out a panther tank, wow. uh, which <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's he's certainly an example of those World War Two heroes and, and a company commander who always led from the front. Uh, and uh, it was it was actually it was thoroughly thoroughly enjoyable to hear him tell the story and to have still people around that were his units to tell the story, uh, and it, you, you're you're cognizant the whole time that those stories are you know we're losing those those yeah. veterans all the time and those stories aren't being told. Absolutely, it was just a hoot to watch. It's called Maggie's War. I love Magellan TV for a lot of different reasons. I can go there and learn about penguins, uh, or I can go there and learn about pharaohs, or I can go there and and get a really good story from the Second World War and the the sort of stories that we like to tell in the History Guy. What have you been watching on Magellan? on tv 
So I, I maybe maybe weirdly, the one I want to talk about today was uh, also straight up history, and we've we've kind of gone different directions and stuff. But this this one, I mean, I think we say this with a with a number of the history documentaries we watch. They feel a little bit like uh, so, some stuff we do on the the channel. And so what I watched was King Arthur the Legend, and I think you know we've done a couple of those where we talk about uh, these kind of mythical figures and then try to look at the history behind them. So this this one was really interesting. I I like King Arthur as a story. I think it's a really interesting piece of it's a piece of history but i think i mean and what what the documentary is a lot about is you know is there a historical arthur and to some extent if you know whether whether there was a real arthur as a singular human being or not uh, the the impact that Mm -hmm. the image of arthur has had on history and so Mm -hmm. it's so it actually i mean it manages to go from essentially prehistoric times to uh, then of course to the period that if arthur existed where he would have lived which was that chaotic period after after the romans left after rome yeah and the saxons are coming in and i I mean i've read some i've read some great books Uh, if you haven't the bernard cornwell's trilogy on yeah we're both fans of bernard cornwell if he if he's listening to the podcast we're, we're both fans. I'm, I'm sure he sits around and listens to our podcast. I hope uh, so. <laughs> uh, yeah, and uh, I, I'll have to watch that one. I'd yeah, love was, to. I, I like. I mean, because there is a fair point to say, no matter what else historically, Arthur yeah. certainly existed because those Arthurian legends yeah. uh, impacted history in and of themselves. Yeah. I'll have to watch that one. Yeah, just like you know, just like Magellan, it was something that was interesting. It was amazing. It was awesome to watch. And gosh, yeah. you can always go to be watching something else. I, I did want to mention that you know we're we're in the holiday period and you can get uh, Magellan for 30% off uh, for a lifelong learner they've got a pro they've got a promo code for that okay. so. and, and also that uh, you can get gift cards you can sell yes, gift, gift cards, cards for and you can get them year round they're not just a Christmas yeah. thing but I mean that is a that is a really good gift if you some, yeah. like if you know someone who loves history and they've not seen Magellan TV then give them a month of Magellan yeah. TV and or you'll get a few months actually because you got the you get the free month anyway yeah. uh, and then you get a discount and you got a gift card uh, and I tell you what I'm I use it more than any other subscription. And of course, if you are a listener or watcher of The History Guy, you can always go to try.magellantv.com slash historyguy, where we will always have a deal for you, sometimes a free month or a deal on an annual membership, or even a documentary that you can watch for free. Again, that's try.magellantv.com slash historyguy. Next up, The History Guy tells the story of the USS Nevada, the only battleship to have been sunk at Pearl Harbor and also been present at the D-Day landings. D-Day, the Allied assault on Hitler's fortress Europe, occurred 75 years ago this year. The landings commenced on June 6, 1944. More than 150,000 Allied troops would be involved in the largest amphibious invasion in history, landing at the points of northern France that were codenamed Utah, Omaha, Gold, Juno, and Sword. Of the nearly 7,000 naval vessels that supported this massive landing, there was one that had already been sunk by the Axis powers three and a half years earlier. The D-Day contributions of the USS Nevada, the only battleship to have been both at the attack on Pearl Harbor and the Normandy landings, deserves to be remembered. The landing area called Utah Beach was the point that was farthest west of the landings at D-Day. The goal was to cut off the Cotentin Peninsula in the hopes of capturing the port of Cherbourg, which Allied planners considered critical for supplying the European beachhead. The attack on Utah Beach was led by some 21,000 men of the U.S. 4th Infantry Division, supported by tanks of the 70th Tank Battalion. Utah Beach, and contrary to some apocryphal stories, there is no special meaning to the name, was defended by troops of the 709th Static Infantry Division. 
The division was made up largely of non-German conscripts, and it was assigned to occupation duties, and so was not as well equipped or trained as most troops of the German army. Their combat effectiveness was further reduced, as its more veteran units had been transferred to the Eastern Front, and the troops facing the 4th Infantry Division largely lacked combat experience. They were not trained in mobile warfare. They had little mechanized support. Still, they were trained in static defense. They knew their sector well, and the area had been heavily fortified. In an attempt to limit any landing, the Germans had flooded the farmland behind the beach, restricting the available travel. Even if the Allies could isolate the Cotentin Peninsula, the port of Cherbourg had significant defenses, including heavy guns. Utah Beach included a formidable seawall that had to be breached for the tanks of the 70th Tank Battalion to be able to move inland. The soldiers assaulting Utah Beach were fortunate. During the pre-battle aerial bombardment, the area had low cloud cover. Instead of abandoning the mission, the bomber group decided to attack from a lower altitude, placing their planes at greater risk. The decision meant that their bombing was more accurate and effective than it had been at other landing points, for a loss of only four bombers. What's more, the soldiers of the 4th Infantry Division had a significant naval bombardment group for support, centered on the battleship USS Nevada. Nevada had been the most modern battleship in the world when it was launched in July 1914. The first of the American standard-type battleships, the Nevada incorporated a number of important innovations that would be a part of all U.S. battleships that followed, including an oil-fired steam power plant rather than coal boilers, geared turbines, and all-or-nothing armor, which provided maximum armor over critical places like engines and magazines, and none over less important places. It's allowed better armor over critical points for less weight. Nevada also was the first American battleship to mount three guns in a turret, allowing it to mount ten massive 14-inch guns in four turrets. Two battleships of the class were built, Nevada and Oklahoma. Both had been on Battleship Row on December 7, 1941. Nevada had not been moored next to another battleship, and was so, so was the only U.S. battleship to get underway during the Japanese attack. She was struck by one torpedo and four aerial bombs. Taking on water, she grounded near Ford Island to prevent her sinking in deeper water. Thus, Nevada was sunk in the first few minutes of America's violent entry into World War II, along with the battleships Arizona, California, West Virginia, and her sister ship, Oklahoma. Arizona, whose magazine had exploded, and Oklahoma, struck by as many as eight torpedoes, were too damaged for salvage. But the other three battleships sunk that day were raised and returned to service. Using massive cranes, by mid-February, Nevada was refloated and repaired enough to sail to Puget Sound for repairs and modernization. She was at sea again in October of 1942, participated in the Battle of Attu in Alaska in May of 1943, and after more modernization and convoy duty in the Atlantic, was one of six battleships used to support the D-Day landings, along with the battleships Texas and Arkansas, and the British battleships Warspite, Ramblies, and Rodney. Nevada, the only battleship to be both at Pearl Harbor and at Normandy, and the only battleship assigned to support the landings at Utah Beach, had something to prove to the Axis that had sunk her three and a half years before, the attack on Utah included approximately 14,000 paratroops of the U.S. 82nd and 101st Airborne Divisions. Their job was to take critical crossroads, prevent reinforcement of Cherbourg. Some of the heaviest fighting took place behind the landing points at places like St. Mariglise, where the lightly armed paratroops who had suffered significant casualties and were dispersed in the landings desperately needed reinforcement. The big guns of Nevada, able to fire more than 15 miles, would be critical in breaking up enemy formations and preventing them moving reinforcements behind the lines. The invasion was massive. Nevada crewman Ralph Potts told the Reno Gazette Journal in 2004 that you couldn't see the sky, there were so many airplanes flying overhead. Eugene Kidd, a Stuart First Class on one of the support vessels, was quoted in the Nevada State Journal of Reno, Nevada in October of 44. 
One of the greatest convoys in naval history was to engage in the battle under the aerial protection of fortresses, Spitfires, P-37s, and dive bombers, which made a virtual floor in the sky, fenced in by 24 miles of destroyers, cruisers, battleships, supply and hospital ships, LSTs, PT boats, and landing boats of all descriptions. Petty Officer Franklin Sturgis on a Nevada gun crew said it was an immense thing to see, something one could never forget. The naval bombardment began at 4.45 a.m., 45 minutes before H-hour. According to some reports, the Nevada was among the first of the Allied Armada to come under fire, a close call that straddled the ship, landing shells on either side. Nevada's captain, Paul Rhea, said, We got out of that particular spot damn fast. But then came Nevada's turn. Kidd recalled, I saw the battleship Nevada was the first to fire with any results on the shore, knocking out two batteries in a quarter of an hour. Petty Officer Sturgis, quoted in the Berkshire County Eagle of Pittsburgh, Massachusetts, explained, Our job was to drench the beast with gunfire before troops landed, and to knock out enemy strongpoints afterwards. One of the first priorities was to knock holes in the Utah Beach's seawall, otherwise the tanks of the 70th Armored Battalion would be stuck on the beach. Nevada's 14-inch guns, lobbing 500-pound shells filled with TNT, quickly knocked four huge holes in the wall. But the Germans had nearly 70 different gun emplacements in the fortified area. The shells were coming close. Crewman Potts recalled, We were getting shelled so close that we had to be like soldiers in a foxhole. I was on the port side. I had to go over to the starboard side to keep from getting splashed because the shells were getting too close. The firing was heavy. Potts recalled, The guns got so hot that they got splashed with water. They sizzled. The first troops and tanks to the beach were drawn farther south by the tide than they expected, hitting the beach some 2,000 yards from their assigned landing zones. The mistake turned out to be fortunate, as the tide had dragged away many of the dangerous beach obstacles. Among the troops was the most senior Allied officer to land on the beach on D-Day, Brigadier General Theodore Roosevelt, Jr., the son of the former president and assistant division commander of the 4th Infantry Division. He quickly appraised the situation and determined that the accidental landing spot was superior to the original plans and ordered further landings there, saying he decided to start the war from right here. But the beach was protected by two German strongpoints composed of heavy guns under massive concrete casemates near the French hamlet of La Dune de Varvey. The casemates were manned by soldiers of the 1st Battalion of the Grenadier Regiment 919 and mounted the dreaded German 88s, 8.8 centimeter guns, as well as numerous other pieces. The strongpoints had to be neutralized in order to protect the thousands of troops on their way. Troops of the 3rd Battalion of the 22nd Infantry Regiment, accompanied by Sherman tanks of the 1st Platoon of Company A of the 746th Tank Battalion, attacked the bunkers. But the 75mm guns of the tanks had no effect on the heavy concrete. The assault was driven back, losing a tank to the 88s. And so they called in the mighty 14-inch guns of Nevada. After pounding the two massive casemates and forcing the Germans to retreat, Rhea ordered Nevada to move in another 1,100 yards. This, was not, this not only allowed her 14-inch guns to better support the paratroopers desperately holding positions inland, but allowed the Nevada to bring her batteries of 5-inch and twin 40-millimeter guns into range, pounding the pillboxes and machine guns and other secondary fortifications along the beach. Seaman First Class Jade Gibbon of Lee's Summit, Missouri, was a loader in one of the 5-inch guns. His crew officer noticed that after each round, Gibbon held up his right hand. The officer assumed that the signal meant OK and continued feeding the gun. In fact, in the fast loading, Gibbons had been Gibbons' hand had been caught between two shells. His finger was broken and nearly severed. In the first two hours and ten minutes of firing, Gibbon loaded 26,730 pounds, more than 30 tons of five-inch shells, with the broken finger, until someone figured out what his signal meant and he was replaced. Despite the injury, he never let the fire falter. 
Another crewman loaded over 800 shells, weighing 70 pounds each, over a period of four hours, without relief. Sturgis recalled, I worked hard, passing ammunition. We slept on the deck and ate K-rations. That was how the entire crew fought the battle. A war correspondent aboard Nevada said of them, These were men who slept only an hour or two during all this time. Slept for 15 minutes at a time, sitting upright in radio rooms. Slept for half an hour at a time, sprawled over one another on the gun mounts. Nevada, at times the only artillery available inland, was renowned for the accuracy of its fire. Its missions were critical to the lightly armed airborne troops trying to hold causeways and crossroads, now being assaulted by German armor. A firing mission on June 8th was called to attack a formation of 90 tanks and 20 lorries, and then bombard the road that they had used to get there. In 20 minutes, they were told by the spotter, fire very effective. All tanks and lorries destroyed or damaged. None got away. Ship was able to fire with such accuracy because of the close coordination between Navy and Army. As the Danville Morning News of Danville, Pennsylvania explained in July of 1944, each Army battalion was assigned a fire control party consisting of one naval and one Army officer and 12 Army enlisted men who were technicians skilled in radio communications. The Navy men were given Army training and the Army men were given Navy training to the extent that all the men in the unit understood both the problems of the ground and sea forces in the operation. An Army spotter near St. Mary Glees, First Lieutenant Joseph Hull, was contacted by a patrol of paratroopers trapped by a concentration of nine enemy tanks. Hull said, I contacted the Nevada, and the second salvo hit the first two tanks in line. That was some shooting, so I called for rapid fire, and in a short while the Nevada had scored direct hits on seven of the tanks. The two remaining tanks were destroyed by exploding ammunition from the others. Army Fire Control Officer First Lieutenant William B. French said, The Nevada shooting was the prettiest sight of the war as far as the paratroopers were concerned. Those guns cleared out that road like a bulldozer. Nevada's fire was so accurate that at times it was firing 15 miles to hit targets less than 500 yards from Allied troops. When an aerial spotter called in the location of a 155mm battery, in less than an hour the plane spotting reported guns, shelter, headquarters, all completely destroyed. Nevada continued to attack troop concentrations, breaking up counterattacks and disrupting German attempts to reinforce Cherbourg. Another time, a spotter called in a battery of four German guns. Nevada straddled the guns in just two shots, completely silencing the battery in less than 20 minutes. The Nevada had done so from an astounding 17 and a half miles away. From the start of the bombardment, the crew of the Nevada was at general quarters, meaning the crew was at battle stations firing their guns for 80 hours straight. The Boston Globe described the more than 1,214 inch shells fired in the first six days of the invasion as approximately one and a half million of your war bonds that couldn't be better spent. The Danville Morning News of Danville, Pennsylvania opined that the slugger of the ships which made the assaults on the shore positions in France was the Nevada. The battleship has become legend among the thousands of doughboys in France. And in perhaps the most direct compliment regarding the Navy's role at D-Day, Lieutenant Colonel Joe Rudder of the 2nd Raider Battalion said, Tell the Navy, we love them. The assault on Utah Beach was costly. The paratroopers suffered some 2,500 casualties and another 700 men died at sea. But the 4th Infantry Division landed 21,000 men on the beach at Utah for a cost of only 197 casualties. A stunning fact for which the heavy and accurate fire of the USS Nevada deserves some credit. Her heavy guns would be needed again just a few days later for the assault on Cherbourg, and then later in August, and the second D-Day, the attack on southern France called Operation Dragoon, before she was sent to the Pacific and participated in the bombardment during the Battle of Okinawa. After the war, more than 32 years old, the Navy decided that Nevada was simply too old to retain, but she proved difficult to sink. 
She survived not one, but two atomic blasts. One in which she was literally painted orange because she was supposed to be the target of the bomb, and yet she did not sink. She was hauled to Hawaii, used for target practice by the USS Iowa. Failed to sink her. Finally, she was sunk by an aerial torpedo. Stubborn to the last. The next episode takes us from the attack on Pearl Harbor and then all the way to D-Day. And so this was uh, of the many of the many battleships that were that were sunk or damaged at Pearl Harbor. Nevada was the only one that actually got underway and it's I mean it sustained mm -hmm. significant damage. But it did. I mean she was she was sinking. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of argument over whether they moved her to shallow water to make her easier to recover or whether they moved her to shallow water in order to prevent her from blocking the channel. There's some argument over that. But in any which case, yes. I mean she was sunk at Pearl Harbor. Yeah. Uh, and the, the the really extraordinary story about uh, Nevada at Pearl Harbor is that they had a bomb, uh, you know, if you want to talk about Japanese planning for the battle, I mean they created specific weapons for this battle, but they had these armor-piercing bombs that were made out of uh, a decommissioned obsolete 16-inch artillery shells. Wow. And those did go straight, and that's what blew up uh, Arizona, and that's probably what hold uh, the uh, California, uh, and uh, that's uh, th that is what hit the Nevada. The thing is, the Nevada had been through just normal maintenance; had been through a process of switching out its ammunition, so that went into its forward magazine. Nevada could have blown up like Arizona did, but huh. I mean, it went into an empty magazine. That's an extraordinary story, yeah. But Gosh, yeah, that's she did. A... She she was sunk at Pearl Harbor. She had to be raised. She had to be repaired. She had to be modernized, and then she ended up serving in so many distinctive ways. Yeah, uh, and she. She's just, I mean, she's a grand old ship. She really is. And her, her story at D-Day is, I mean, you know, the Texas story at D-Day is quite exciting, too. Yeah. We haven't told Arkansas yet. We haven't told, there's, uh, our, you know, there's a few stories still to tell at D-Day yeah. as well. But uh, there are so many stories of heroism at Pearl Harbor. There are so many stories of heroism at D-Day. And here's this story of both. Uh, and golly, if you're talking about getting revenge against the Axis, I mean, Nevada <laughs> is a good story of that. She really is. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, I, I, th I actually noticed that, you know, there, was, there are a number of similarities between the the texas and the nevada uh, yeah. i i guess i thought i kind of just in my like you know the back of my head and thought the nevada was was a much more modern ship than the texas but it, it actually launched only two years later and it was kind of a the culmination of a number of of new technologies and new mm -hmm. concepts because it, it had like the the uh, all-in uh, armor uh, mm -hmm. and all or nothing that's what they called it right that's the yeah all or nothing and, armor which which texas was kind of in between there, yeah, I mean, they were starting to see the strategy at the time. Yeah. But it's, I mean, Texas was in so many ways a test bed, and you yeah. know those test beds then led to the you know the the, the other classes, the new yeah. classes. Because the Nevada uh, and, launched uh, only what two years later, I think, nineteen sixty. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she started what she had some three gun turrets, but also some two gun turrets. And yeah. I mean, she, she clearly is transitional when you look at to the to the newer battleships there. Yeah, uh, and you know she was. I mean, those old battleships still you know had a lot yeah. that they could do. Yeah, well, both of them served throughout the war uh, admirably, and it, especially in, in ways we didn't necessarily expect them to, because I think that uh, we didn't necessarily know that the war, uh, that, that naval warfare was going to be essentially all planes. Uh, before oh, World yeah. War II, I think that yeah. was that was uh, we, it really a lot I think, changed. I mean, other people, like Billy Mitchell clearly had that as a vision yeah. and stuff like that. But uh, uh, that's one of the things also about Pearl Harbor too is that the Japanese had really yeah. kind of figured out the meaning of aircraft carriers more than we had. Uh, and uh, you know, at Pearl Harbor, uh, they the aircraft carriers one of the reasons, one of the biggest reasons that the Japanese didn't fly the third strike, which could have attacked the oil tankers and all that stuff, that uh, the, the the oil reserves and things that uh, that Nimitz talked about was that they knew that the aircraft carriers weren't there, and so they were afraid. That there was some significant air group out there they didn't know where it was. They no longer had the the, the element of surprise. Uh, and so carriers, you know, made a difference at Pearl Harbor even by not being yeah. at, at Pearl Harbor. But yeah, we didn't we didn't know that you know that naval aviation was going to make such a difference in the naval war at the time. 
And you know, luckily by D-Day, uh, the you yeah. know the Allied fleet didn't have a significant fear. I mean, the, you know, the Luftwaffe did do some stuff at D-Day, yeah. but I mean, the, by then we had enough air superiority that we didn't even have an aircraft carrier at D-Day. But certainly uh, there and, was there was danger uh, to to yeah. the ships. I, I don't yeah. think there was any. Yeah, well, you see that because when you see refit and, and modernization during the war, yeah. all of it every time it is adding more anti-aircraft guns. That's, <laughs> That's what they're doing. They're like, yeah, they had torpedoes. <laughs> I was going, you know, rip out the torpedoes <laughs> and another six inch aircraft guns. Yeah, they're yeah, always. That, that's really uh, what they were doing throughout. Yeah. It's it's actually kind of interesting to read through. Uh, uh, you know, we we just did one on the Texas at Okinawa, and that was toward very toward the end of the war. And they still at the end were like, we we should have more anti aircraft. Need more anti aircraft <laughs> guns. Yeah, there really was no such thing as as too many anti aircraft guns. Uh, and but the, I I thought it was you know both of them served at D Day, but the Nevada had a had a at a different it was i mean it was on a different beach it was fighting a different it was yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, the texas has some great stories i mean told some really texas cool was stories at, Opaha, about, oh, at, at omaha beach and nevada yeah. was over at uh, yeah. uh, utah, utah beach yeah yeah it, and you know utah beach went a lot better than omaha beach and part of that might have been because the shore bombardment. i mean one of the reasons for that had to do with the, the air bombardment but i mean part of that was that the shore bombardment was was very successful at utah and uh that opened up the beach, but I mean, there was a, there were so many interesting things that happened there too. You know, the the, uh, the the original landing craft were washed by turret downstream, and then they got there, and and Teddy Roosevelt Jr. said, "Hey, this is a better place to land." Uh, and I mean, there was there's a lot of things that went right at Utah that just didn't go right at yeah. Omaha. But certainly, uh, Utah would have been gone much more poorly were it not for the extraordinary marksmanship of the Nevada. And there's, I mean, having studied that battle, there, I mean, there is a whole lot of really extraordinary commentary about yeah. how good the Nevada was at targeting. So that, you know, 15 miles inland, uh, they're shooting at targets that are 500 yards from our troops. Crazy. I, I mean, honestly, yeah, yeah. honestly wild. And that that there doesn't seem to have been a, a whole lot of friendly fire. And I mean, that's stuff you're always concerned about when you're firing. Yeah, yeah. But, you would think with these big 15-inch guns, there doesn't seem yeah. to have been a lot of friendly fire incident, even though they're calling them in. And, uh, you know, one of the stories there is they're being attacked by German tanks. And they, and they, lo- they lay in on this tank column. And they're talking yeah. about direct hits. <laughs> Oh my God! A tank, I, a tank is built to withstand, you know, pretty heavy guns. It's hard for an infantryman to do damage. Yeah, you know, they can, but it's hard. But I mean, <laughs> you have to take their kind of surprise with a 15-inch <laughs> battleship round. He's coming in. Yeah, that'll come straight through the roof of your tank. Yeah, there's, there's no. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I don't. I, I can't imagine that any, any of them were, were uh, able to withstand yeah, I know, the shots. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, if you were <laughs> landing anywhere near with those naval guns, yeah, then that was the end of the tank. Yeah. Was, but I mean, they're talking about knocking out whole artillery batteries. And, yeah. And, I mean, I mean, it's, it's incredible, you know, what battleships can do. Yeah. And and then Nevada is a great example of that. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's truly. I, I mean, it's an example of so many things because certainly, you know, Utah went fairly well as far as the landings went oh yeah uh, yeah and t- but, well certainly in terms of the casualties oh yeah but i mean utah also had the, a lot of airborne landings behind yeah. it uh that that actually had you know took a lot of casualties and things like that it just was not the slaughter on the beach that omaha was yeah. when when we look back at it now i think that we we sometimes forget just how precarious that that landing could have been and how how precarious it was at times and yeah. certainly it was the fact mm-hmm. that you know they couldn't the the tanks the the shermans couldn't break through the you know for, through fortifications it is yeah. it's a little yeah. funny to be like oh well when the when a 76 isn't going to work let's go throw in a <laughs> let's go through a 15 inch round or five yeah, inch round that'll uh, but that'll, uh, that'll, yeah that'll i mean that the seawall i mean there's a lot of things could have gone wrong at utah 
Uh, yeah. and, uh, and and the, the aerial bombardment was more successful yeah. at Utah because they were trying to go below clouds. But uh, there are a lot of things, and they didn't. I mean, the fact that there were fewer casualties there, that it was not the you know the sort of slaughter that Omaha was, where they literally were talking about, we, we might have to you know evacuate the beach. Yeah. That didn't happen at Utah. And a good chunk of that was because of Nevada. I mean, it, just, it has to take a lot of credit there. And, and when you even have airborne troops saying, you know, the, the Nevada is saving us, you know, yeah. miles inland. Miles. I mean, that's, that's incredible. And there's so many stories there. There's the stories of how they took the naval, uh, you know, they, they cross-trained the Army and the Navy yeah. so that the Army guys understood the Navy guns, the Navy guys understood the Army guns, and then those guys were working together. And uh, that really turned that into such an incredible weapon of war. And that's cool. I mean, it's particularly cool because she's a very old ship, you know. Yeah. She was built for the First World War. Yeah. Uh, and here she was uh, playing such a significant role in such a significant battle uh, because uh, the way they'd figured out how to use her, you know, 14-inch guns. Yeah, that, that kind of combined combined arms idea where they were there. I, I mean, it's 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 something that seems simple when you think about it, but I, those that was not easy to do. I mean, it was it was sometimes very difficult to have various branches working with each other. And oh, this is yeah. this was such a successful uh, example of that. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it really is quite incredible. I mean, all of these stories. I mean, the story of the guy who uh, broke his finger like early on, and then he's still just yeah. loading. He keeps raising he's trying, his he's hand trying to like, wave and see my finger's broken, please. and the guy doesn't understand what he's saying, so he just loaded all those five inch rounds, whipping through there with his finger broken. Yeah, yeah he just as long as he was at his in his position, he was loading the guns. I mean, that's I I yeah. I, uh, I, I, I mean, that yeah, they were getting splashed so much that he went over to the other side of the ship just so he could get dry. They're going to shower some. That, that yeah, they were one, straddled on the first on the first fire, and then they moved the ship right away and. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's. Uh, we don't necessarily think about when you think about the navy at yeah. D-Day. When you think about the navy at, at, at the beaches, you're really thinking about how much supply that they moved uh, so yeah. quickly, and that's an extraordinary story. But I think we tell a lot less the story of the navy's engagement during the battle than we talk about the army. And obviously, mm-hmm. you know, the landing is was an incredible, and these people were under fire, and, and huge amounts of heroism there, or people that were dropping behind the lines. And there's so much that's going on. But I mean, these guys, uh, you know, in the navy that were, you know. They were essentially at station, yeah, know, cracking those guns. You wonder how any of them ever heard again. I mean, I don't know. Half those guys had to be deaf when they got home. But I mean, they're firing. They're firing these guns for eighty, ninety hours straight, yeah. right? And you know, crazy. Yeah. Um, we've been we we've been on board the Texas, uh, which mm-hmm. the, the Nevada, I imagine, is somewhat different, but similar in that. I mean, these are enclosed spaces. Yeah. And being in, I can't imagine firing the firing the guns from inside the turret. Just the the volume. Yeah. And of you sound. can't even see outside. You know, oh, no. and there's uh, and the, the air, the smoke, the smell, the I mean, you know, just being in there with someone who hadn't showered in 80 hours is kind of hard to imagine when you're down in there. Yeah, and, and you know, really, I mean, because because uh, they were at risk. There were shore batteries that certainly couldn't hurt a battleship there. Uh, and uh, so, I mean, I think that the the heroism of the Nevada is worth mentioning. And, and honestly, the troops on the ground thought it was worth mentioning because of, of what Nevada did for yeah. them. Yeah, and, the, was, and you could tell that story. I mean, there were a lot of cruisers and destroyers. And I mean, there were you could tell that story with a lot of ships in the, uh, at D-Day. They, they really did go above and beyond to support those ground trips. And it was it was a fantastic example of the two working in concert in a way that yeah, they maybe weren't so good at you yeah. know, when they when they landed in North Africa. But yeah. by the and time it, they got to D-Day, they were much, much better. It was, uh, you know, amphibious landings are, are very difficult. And I mean, gosh, we found in we found in World War II sometimes that they're they're difficult. I mean, the landing at uh, Dieppe and uh, Anzio. I mean, mm-hmm. both both of those we learned that you know it's 
it's hard. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. it's a very complex operation, and certainly uh, that, well, I mean, was, generally not successfully done in the First yeah. World War. I mean, there yeah. were attempts, but there was you know no one really knew how to do it. And, yeah. uh, nothing nothing on the scale of Normandy, pretty much, uh, except Normandy, and mm-hmm. it's it's truly incredible. Now, I mean, there's some arguments over in the Pacific whether Okinawa oh, was actually fair. bigger that's than Normandy, yeah. which was bigger than Normandy, and we learned a lot of lessons there in Europe too. But I mean, that's yeah, those I mean, this, Normandy was something that was absolutely unprecedented at the yeah. time. No one had even considered something you know that. That big, that coordinated, you know, with with armies yeah. from what five nations? I think we landed and yeah, and uh, uh, and successful. Yeah, and I, successful. I mean, honestly, and it was it was. I mean, it was incredible how much planning went into it. And you know, the Nevada. I mean, the Nevada story is particularly poignant because uh, because it was at Pearl Harbor originally, and so because it, it was at Pearl Harbor. Yeah, and, the first the first act that brought us into the war was to sink the Nevada, and then she not only rose from that. Yeah. Uh, but that she was there at you know at uh, at D-Day. I mean, it's an extraordinary story, and that's why we kind of told it in the video. The only ship that yeah. was at both. Yeah. And she you know continued to serve bravely. I mean, I like the story of her sinking. I mean, they just couldn't sink her. You know, that's she, she refused I, to go down. Yeah. It it is something else, and I I know that you know I think we've talked about this a couple of times. It's 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 hard to see history like that go down, but we you know it's difficult also to yeah. uh, maintain these these ships. And it I, is. I yeah, we hear that, that all the time. Like, you know, why didn't Nevada preserve yeah. the Nevada or whatever? And the, 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 it's true, but it is incredibly expensive. We've learned that working with the people at the Texas. Yeah. Uh, and, and she's a wonderful ship, the USS Texas. But, I mean, there's we've got a fair amount of museum ships, and they compete for resources. Uh, and I think that they all struggle constantly competing for those resources. So, I mean, how many of the ships could we have preserved? So it does seem, you know, a terrible tragedy that we just that we just took Nevada, who served so bravely, and just took it out to sea somewhere and shot at it until it went underwater. Uh, and you, you even wonder why we, you know, couldn't turn it into razor blades. Yeah. But uh, I mean, at least we'd have the razor blades. But I mean, the, in a realistic sense, I mean, you know, we, the the fleet that we had by the end of the Second World War was huge. We preserved it for a long time in mothballs, just in case yeah. the war started again. Uh, but I mean, there's only so much you can actually do in terms of preserving, you know, things that old. Uh, and so I, I'm sorry that she's not around, and I'm glad that we have a few pieces of her that we can use to remember her. But I mean, the yeah. story, I mean, the history—that's what—that's what we have to hang on to. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History Guy podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Forgotten History, and if you did, you can find more on our website, thehistoryguy.com. We release podcasts every two weeks, so stick around if you want to hear more podcasts of Forgotten History. You can also find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Patreon. You can even get a personalized message from the History Guy himself on Cameo.